Charles lay in bed and called his teenage son William to his side. William, my son, I'm dying. You have honored me by caring for me and our farm instead of joining the army as you would have liked. Listen carefully now, my son. The enemy is fast approaching us and you cannot stay here. You must go alone through enemy territory to the north. Take this letter to Fort Washington. I have addressed it to Colonel Douglas E. Harris and it bears my seal. It identifies you as the son and heir of Charles F. Conrad. When you reach the fort, take it immediately to Colonel Harris. He will help you. Colonel Harris is a good man, son. You can trust him. He once told me any family or friend of yours is family or friend of mine. Son, those in Fort Washington are your family now. The way is long, a seven-day journey, but about halfway deep in the birch forest by the river near the North Fork, you will find a cabin. Old man Stevens lives there. He's a friend. He will take you in and replenish your supplies. Rest there for the night and set out again next day before dawn. You need to travel light and quick, but take my musket and enough supplies to make it to old man Stevens. Watch out for the enemy, son. If you are captured with my letter, you will be killed. So hide in the shadows. Use the trees as your cover. Only fight if absolutely necessary to save your life, but move in stealth to Fort Washington. Their open gates are your safety. The journey will be hard. You will be cold, hungry, and tired, and lonely. But look ahead and think of Fort Washington. You must make it. The fort is your refuge. Go, and God is with you. I love you, son. William embraced and kissed his father, packed up his knapsack, grabbed the musket above the door, and left on his journey to Fort Washington. Well, kids, this is a, this is a fictional story, but how would you feel if you were William Conrad? William's father gave him a great responsibility. The journey to Fort Washington demanded William's bravery and perseverance because, quite frankly, it was really hard to get there. But, but William's father also gave him great hope, a good reason to, to make the journey. For, for, the, for during the journey, William would find support along the way. And, and in reaching Fort Washington, he would experience his safety and will get a new family and, and have the love there. Last week, we looked at Jesus' sobering words in verses 34 through 39. The apostles would need great courage on their hard journey of gospel ministry. But Jesus' words were not without hope and reward. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Serious words, but, but comforting words of hope and reward. Well, Jesus ends his second discourse in Matthew with warm and comforting words, words of promise, words of hope, and not just for the apostles as they set out on their gospel mission, but also for the people who would receive the apostles warmly and care for them with kindness. For every disciple of Jesus, then and now, there is a cost to following Jesus. But though disciples will suffer conflict on account of Jesus, they will also experience deep and rich love and fellowship 
and support with others who love Jesus along that hard, hard road. Not everyone hears the gospel and rejects it. Many hear and receive it, and they receive who preach it, those who preach it, and they are rewarded by receiving those who, who preach it and bring it. The reward of following Jesus, folks, outweighs the cost. My point today is the exact same point as last week. What you gain in following Christ far exceeds what you give up to follow Christ. And when you truly believe it, you will joyfully give up all to follow Christ. From a relational standpoint, following Jesus and having it create conflict in your life, perhaps with those closest to you, is heartbreaking. However, it's much easier to endure that pain, that trial, when you know that you are a companion of Christ. And therefore, you are loved and supported and encouraged by God and also by God's family. So the following five points delve into the reward of loving those who belong to Jesus. Number one, the reward of loving the apostles. The reward of loving the apostles. Jesus told his apostles, verse 40, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. I'll draw your attention to six things from that wonderful sentence. One, Jesus said, whoever receives you. So think hospitality. Think a warm welcome into someone's home. Think partnership in the gospel mission. After warning them of conflict on account of him, Jesus gave the apostles promise and hope that some would warmly receive them. And that was encouraging. Think back to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 11 to 13. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Well, that meant that there were worthy people out there that were ready to take them in, ready to warmly welcome them. In his good providence, in his good providence, God would provide for, we're falling apart here, folks. <laughs> Always eventful outside. All right. We okay there? Yes, All right. Can be replaced. In his good providence, God would provide for the apostles through the kindness and the generosity of other people who were out there. Jesus continued, as you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. Now, if you advance to Paul, the Lord told the Apostle Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. Well, that, that promise comforted Paul. God had people in that city. His ministry was worth it, and he would be received by some. The world may hate Christ. But God's people are out there, some of whom have yet to be saved, and great is their love for Christ and the church. Two, when Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me, he was reinforcing the apostles' oneness with him. They were one with Christ. They were his chosen apostles. It was 
so certain that he had united them to himself that to receive the apostles was equivalent of receiving Christ himself. Later in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Belonging to Christ was great comfort for the apostles in their mission. Three, whoever receives you receives me reinforced that they indeed had been given their master's authority. D.A. Carson wrote, quote, it is commonly understood in the New Testament that a man's agent must be received as the man himself, end of quote. In Matthew 10, 1, Jesus gave his authority to the 12 disciples. So to receive the apostles' authority was to see, receive the authority of Christ himself, and that encouraged them. Four, Jesus lovingly affirmed his identity to the apostles. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Well, who sent Jesus? God the Father did. The verb for sent is apostello, which is related to the word apostle. An apostle is a messenger sent out with authority to declare a message. So in the fullest sense of the word, Jesus is the preeminent apostle of God sent into the world to preach the gospel of God's kingdom. Jesus is God's divine and preeminent apostle who came and spoke with God's authority. Just listen to the kinds of things that Jesus said in John's gospel. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Whoever believes me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. The message of Jesus, the Messiah, is the message of God because God sent Jesus. When we hear Jesus, we hear God. The apostles knew that, that Jesus was sent from God. That was an important point for them. Five, Jesus' words reminded them that they belonged to God their Father and they were doing his work. See, God the Father sent Jesus Christ, the Son, into the world. Jesus Christ, the Son, chose the apostles out of the world and sent them into the world to preach the gospel. So through Jesus Christ, the Son, God their Father was sending them out. Whatever conflict came on account of Christ, they were doing God's work. They were doing their Father's work. And they didn't have to wonder whether they were being faithful to their father or whether their father would bless them or whether they're doing the right thing, he would bless them. He was sending them out. Their heavenly father, or their, their heavenly reward rather, would be great because by grace they were doing their father's work. Six, there's a blessing in these words for you and me. For everyone who receives the apostles and their gospel witness to Christ, uh, everyone who receives that gets the blessing. So again, listen, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That was incredible news for those who welcomed in the apostles. By showing the apostles hospitality and kindness, 
by listening to their words, by partnering with them in the gospel, by loving them. They were welcoming, caring for, listening to, partnering with, and loving Christ himself. And in doing that, God the Father himself. This is the gospel. To receive Christ is to receive the Father. So to receive Christ by receiving the apostles is also to receive the Father. When someone shows kindness to my children, they are showing kindness to me because I deeply love my children. Everyone who receives the apostles receives Christ and also the Father. Now, what do we do with this today? The apostles are dead, so we can't welcome them into our homes. We, as great as it would be, we can't invite them to preach here from this pulpit. We, we can't encourage them in their gospel mission, right? Well, here's, here's how we do this today. We receive the apostles' witness to Christ by faith as it comes to us in the preaching and teaching ministry of the local church. We believe their words. We support their, their minist the ministry of their words. We devote our gifts and skills in partnership in the ministry of the gospel. The ministry of the apostles continues today through the reading, preaching, and teaching of the apostles' witness to Christ from Holy Scripture in local churches, what we're doing right now, the Apostle Matthew's words. So we receive the apostles today by devoting ourselves to their teaching, which comes to us through the preaching of their testimony. We receive the apostles by believing their testimony. We receive the apostles by partnering in the gospel ministry of our local church, by supporting the church planting efforts of ministers of the gospel, by submitting to the shepherds that Jesus calls and sets over us to shepherd our souls, by devoting our lives to loving and serving one another. People today, even in many churches, go to great lengths to question and undermine the testimony of the apostles in Scripture. This will not bring them blessing from God. So do you gladly receive the apostles with all your heart because by receiving them, you receive Christ and his Father? Well, if, if yes, how do you think that you do that today? Jesus said in John 20, 29, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You didn't know the apostles. You didn't see the events of Scripture happening. But receive the apostles' testimony. Receive the Bible, and in so doing, you receive Christ and your Father. As an apostle, Paul, the, the apostle Paul told the Thessalonian church, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, and I take that to mean the apostolic witness to Christ, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. And that includes the testimony of the apostles in the New Testament. Receive all their testimony with true faith, and you receive Christ and the Father. 
What great comfort and what great reward. Number two, the reward of loving the prophets. Now, verse 41 is a bit tricky to understand. I think I have it. Um, Jesus said this, The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Now, implied in that is that the prophet is a true prophet of the one true almighty God, not a false prophet. A prophet is a person directly commissioned by Almighty God to speak for Almighty God, to speak the inerrant words of God. And this does not simply mean speaking about future events. That's many times where our minds go about speaking the future things coming in. In fact, predicting the future is not primary for a prophet. A prophet does engage in foretelling, telling of future events. But even more, a prophet engages in forth-telling or preaching or proclaiming God's truth with God's authority. Prophet was a unique role in redemptive history. In Ephesians 2, Paul teaches that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the household of God, or you could say the true temple, or you could say the church, Christ himself being the cornerstone. God chose and raised up prophets. And up to chapter 10, Matthew has mentioned the prophets twice. In Matthew 5, 12, Jesus told the 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets' gospel ministry led right into the apostles' gospel ministry. And then in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus added this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There, Jesus is referring to the prophetic and gospel writing ministry of the Old Testament prophets. The prophets wrote God's words down. Jesus acknowledged that the prophetic witness of the Old Testament was God's word. And therein, his word as well. So remember, every letter of the Bible is read. The New Testament points to the fact that the prophets were those of the Old Covenant raised up by God to preach the gospel before the coming of Christ, a ministry which led right into the apostles' ministry. Now, I don't think we have modern-day prophets. Unless by prophet we mean ordained ministers of the gospel raised up by God to preach the apostolic witness to Christ in Scripture. You just don't hear much about prophets in the New Testament after Christ ascended. But you do hear much about the prophets, meaning the Old Testament prophets of God. And you also hear things like Paul telling Pastor Timothy... Pastor Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, modern prophets often scratch the itching ears of people wanting to suit their own passions. Many people think that prophets still exist, but those prophets say things that aren't true or that don't happen, even well and 
tensioned ones. And people failed to recognize that in the Old Testament, a true prophet was verified when his message aligned with the exclusive worship of Yahweh and all his signs, wonders, and predictions were entirely true. If something didn't happen or wasn't aligned with Yahweh or the truth, the prophet was killed. Many so-called prophets today are wrong. But I don't, I don't hear those prophets preaching a message that if a prophet is wrong even just a little bit, they should be killed. They, they should be killed because, hey, they, they lied. They spoke some words that were not the words of God. So we need to think carefully about this. The prophetic ministry today, as I understand it in Scripture, is simply the faithful preaching of the Bible's witness to Christ. The prophets and the apostles included. It is only prophetic to the extent that it's done from the Bible and faithfully proclaimed. Those who received God's prophets, who listened, who heeded, who responded, who obeyed, who blessed the prophets, they received the prophets' reward. They received favor and blessing from God. To receive the prophet who spoke God's word was to receive God himself. To, to oppose the, the, the prophet who spoke for God was to oppose God himself. Do you remember the startling story of uh, Elijah, or Elisha, rather, Elisha, and the young boys who mocked him? Crazy story. Elisha was traveling up to Bethel, and these young boys began to mock God's prophets, saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And by the way, that's not very kind. And, and they jeered God's prophet, which in effect was jeering God himself. Well, Elisha cursed the boys in the name of the Lord. And then two female bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys to pieces. You can read about it in 2 Kings 2. No one was to mess with God's prophets. Now, those who received the prophets, who welcomed them, who heeded their words, they were blessed by God. Think of the poor widow from Zarephath and her interaction with Elijah. She received Elijah kindly, and God richly blessed her and her son. What's the prophet's reward? Before this, the word reward shows up six times in Matthew. Reward refers to a heavenly reward from God the Father, but we need to be careful the word reward, it, the word itself refers to a payment for work that is done. But we must remember that any work done for God and any reward from God for the work is purely and entirely grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, a gift from God. Sinners merit absolutely nothing from God. Heidelberg 63 helps make this clear. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. A gift of grace. Anything received from God, brothers and sisters, excuse me, is grace. The prophet who serves God, who speaks for God, who preaches his word, receives grace. And the one who loves the prophet and receives the prophet of God 
receives grace. God gives his divine favor to both. You know, when, when the Steelers win the Super Bowl this year, in one sense, I will win with them. Now, they are uniquely qualified. Uh, they do what I could never do. Uh, but as they win, I and all the other Steelers fans win too because we win with them. We're not with the Ravens. We're with the black and gold. Well, Paul asks a good question. Are all apostles, are all prophets? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. None of us here are apostles and none of us here are prophets. Does that mean we are not rewarded? Of course not. To receive the gospel of the prophets and the apostles is to receive Christ and all the rewards of heaven in Christ. Do you receive the prophets? Do you receive their work? Do you believe their gospel? If so, their gracious reward is your gracious reward. They spoke for God. And if you believe their testimony, if you receive them, you will receive God's grace as they did. Faith leads to reward. It's cold out here. <laughs> My hands don't turn the pages as easily as inside in the warmth that we'll have next week. Number three, the reward of loving the righteous. Look at verse 41 again. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. So I asked the question, who is a righteous person? And Jesus was clear in Matthew 9, 13, that there are no righteous people. He's the only one. He said that he came to call sinners, not the righteous. Because those who think they're righteous are simply self-righteous and prideful and won't receive Christ's righteousness because they think they're already righteous and they don't need it. So a righteous person is the person who receives the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith and seeks to live a righteous life of thankfulness to God. That's a righteous person. The righteous are God's chosen people. Not because they are inherently righteous, but because God credits them the righteousness of Christ through faith and therefore counts them as righteous. So I take a righteous person to be a believer who receives Christ's righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So who receives a righteous person? Well, people who identify with that righteous person, people who are drawn to their righteousness and, and not repelled or offended by it. The people who receive the righteous will receive the reward of the righteous. And so that as I understand it, is a great incentive to love the righteous, or you could say to love the people of God. All who treat the church of, of Christ with true kindness and generosity and love and partnership will receive a great reward. Number four, the reward of loving the little ones. I really like this point. We have to be careful here because little ones in verse 42 is not a general reference to little children. It's not a general reference to little children. That wouldn't fit the context here. Jesus says this, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 
Now, who did Jesus talk about right before this? The apostles, the prophets, and righteous people. They're all the little ones. In fact, by extension, all of Jesus' disciples throughout history are little ones. This point is strengthened by other, other things that Jesus taught. Various places in Scripture, Jesus addressed his disciples as children. In John 13, 33, in that upper room moment, at the Last Supper, very tender, very intimate with his disciples, Jesus addressed his disciples as little children. Little children. Even the smallest act of kindness to Jesus' little ones, to his disciples, to his followers, even that kindest, littlest act will be rewarded. See, Jesus loves his little ones, those dependent on him, those who trust him, from the apostles to the prophets to the righteous to us, brothers and sisters. We are the little ones. The little ones belong to Christ. And everyone who treats the little ones kindly because they are disciples of Jesus will by no means lose their reward. Now, Jesus not only used the word truly here, which meant that he absolutely believed what he was saying, he was emphasizing that, he also gave a double negative. He will by no, no means lose his reward, which made his promise of reward absolute and beyond all shadow of a doubt. He was really saying this is a true thing. It is promised. It's going to come about. Now notice why the cup of cold water is given. Jesus said, because he is a disciple. Well, what Jesus said in Mark 9:41 is similar. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The kind of kindness that will be rewarded is a kindness done to a person because they belong to Christ. Because they belong to Christ and because they follow Christ. The, the blessing hinges on the motivation of the kindness. As in, oh, you belong to Christ, Jesus? You're a disciple of Jesus? Well, in that case, let me serve you and do something good for you. Let me sacrifice for you. Let me give up something for you. Let me face the threat of persecution just so I can treat you kindly. For if you follow Jesus, oh man, do I ever want to bless you. Here, you're, you're thirsty. I can see that. Here, have a, have a cold drink of water. Let me serve you because you belong to Jesus. I think, brothers and sisters, we would love Christ's little ones more deeply if we were more aware that by loving the little ones, we are loving Jesus Christ himself. I think that would compel us if we were more conscious of that. In Matthew 25, 35 through 40, Jesus teaches about his second coming and the judgment. It's a very interesting passage. And Jesus the king, at his return, will tell the righteous this. For I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? You see, they didn't. They didn't physically see Jesus or do any of these kinds of things directly to Jesus himself. So what was Jesus talking about? Jesus continues, verse 40, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The apostles were the least of these. The prophets are the least of these. The righteous ones are the least of these. The little ones are the least of these. Disciples of Jesus are brothers of Jesus, and they are the least of these. And when anyone does kindness to the least of these, to Jesus' little ones, his precious ones, they are doing it to Christ to whom the little ones belong. Jesus takes notice. Jesus cares. He is watching. He rewards those who love his little ones. So let me, let me press in here into your life. Who are you being kind to the most, and why are you being kind to them? Who do you take care of, and why? Who do you go out of your way to love, and serve, and, and why do you do that? Is it the little ones? And is it because they belong to Christ and they follow him? Do you love Jesus' little ones because you want to love Jesus himself? If so, brothers and sisters, your reward is great. Your heavenly father, he's pleased with you as you seek to love the little ones. And he will reward you handsomely with his gift of grace. You don't need to be a preacher. You don't need to be an evangelist. You don't need to be a prophet or an apostle or hold any office in the church to receive a great reward. If you simply receive those that God calls and sends to preach and teach you and simply love the little ones well, your reward will be great in heaven. Because in receiving the gospel ministers that God sends to you in your church and, and by loving the little ones well, you are receiving and loving Christ and the Father. I love what J.C. Ryle said. He said, the proceedings of preachers and missionaries and teachers and visitors of the poor may appear very trifling and insignificant compared to the movements of kings and parliaments, of armies and of statesmen. But they are not insignificant in the eyes of God. He takes notice who opposes his servants and who helps them. He observes who is kind to them, end of quote. So make sure you understand this. You may take a meal to a brother or sister in Christ, and it will not feel as significant as being the president of the United States or hitting a home run in the World Series or receiving that coveted Grammy. But I assure you, dear little ones, God will reward you for small, simple, and sincere acts of kindness to those who belong to Christ. 
God finds your little acts of kindness to the brethren, to one another. He finds those significant. Significant when done because those people belong to Christ. Let the world celebrate their stupid rewards and accolades. Let us love and serve the little ones because they belong to Christ. And then as we do it, let's expect a great reward from our Father. Don't you want eternal rewards, lasting rewards? So sometime soon, read Philippians 4 and listen to how thankful Paul was for the partnership of the church of Philippi. They treated him with such kindness, received him so well, and they sacrificed for him. And he told them, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so I need your love and your encouragement. And, and the other elders need your love and encouragement. And the deacons need your love and encouragement. And you need each other's love and encouragement. We need one another. And the more we invest in loving one another, the more blessed we will be. Five, the reward itself. I just don't think I can capture the rewards in words. How could I summarize a heavenly reward? The writer of Hebrews captures it, though, as much as God wants us to know, perhaps, at this point. So listen to what the writer of Hebrews told the people who were loving the little ones. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The reward is God. The reward is Christ. The reward is eternal life in the kingdom of God and his Christ and all of the blessings that come with it. But whatever the reward is exactly, it is better than all that we've given up in this life to obtain it. God says that, that it's a great reward and that those who endure with faith and love will have it because God promised it. So I end with a challenge today. And I want you to be challenged. I want you to be challenged for your good, for your growth, for your maturity, for the health of our church. And it comes from J.C. Ryle, and this is how he challenges you and me. Let us ask ourselves... In what light we regard Christ's work and Christ's cause in the world? Are we helpers of it or hinderers? Do we in any way aid the Lord's prophets and righteous men? Do we assist his little ones? Do we impede his laborers or do we cheer them on? These are serious questions. They do well and wisely who give the cup of cold water whenever they have opportunity. End of quote. Brothers and sisters, how are you giving cold water to those who belong to Jesus? Ask yourself, am I helping here or am I hindering? Am I cheering or am I impeding? 
and everyone who helps and cheers, they will be greatly rewarded, greatly rewarded. So brothers and sisters, let us love the cause of Christ and everyone who belongs to Christ, for the reward is great for those who love those who belong to Christ.